0: Welcome to the Becker's Women's Leadership Podcast. I'm Laura Deirda, an editor at Becker's Healthcare, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Cynthia Emery, Associate Chief Medical Officer of Surgery and Vice Chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Wake Forest School of Medicine in North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Emery. I really appreciate it. Could you please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Uh, Originally, I'm from Chicago, grew up a little bit outside of Atlanta and went to the University of Georgia for my undergraduate training and then on to the Medical College of Georgia for med school. Uh, My parents were always very supportive of anything I wanted to pursue. We didn't have any doctors in the family and my interest in science really bloomed because of my uh, female seventh grade science teacher. Uh, Orthopedics became a, a natural choice when combining my interest in anatomy and biomechanics throughout middle school and high school. Um, As a competitive volleyball player in high school and college, I initially went into orthopedics wanting to do sports medicine, uh, but once I did my oncology rotation as a second year resident, I realized that orthopedic oncology was really where I belonged. Uh, I take care of adults and kids with benign and cancerous bone and soft tissue tumors. Uh, I completed my residency at Wake Forest School of Medicine in 2009 and then went to Miami for a year for my fellowship in orthopedic oncology and then returned to Wake Forest in 2010 and have been on faculty there ever since.
0: Great. And could you tell us a little bit about how you got started with your leadership roles?
1: Well, so my leadership roles initially started pretty early uh, in in my career. I'm very fortunate to have extensive leadership and career development pretty early on. In 2012, less than halfway into my second year of practice, one of my mentors, Dr. Walt Curl, he came into my office and he said, Cynthia, I'm retiring and I need someone to take over this medical director thing. And he was referring to the medical director of all of our orthopedic ambulatory clinics. And I asked him, why me? And Walt said, well, because you're the only one that can handle it. Over the next few years, I learned to appreciate the meaning behind his statements. Um, he actually transitioned from being a great mentor as well as into that role of being a sponsor for me. Uh, and I'm grateful for his willingness to get behind me, even though I had no clue what a medical director did, let alone how to be a good one. Um, And then I also learned the value of being uncomfortable. There's a lot of data from like the Harvard Business Review and other journals that show men will apply for a job with only about six out of 10 qualifications, whereas women will apply with at least nine out of the 10 listed qualifications. What I realized over time was it's okay to step into a role and not know how to do everything. That's why you have a team of people to help you. And imagine how boring it would be if you already knew how to do everything well the very first week in a new role. And so the self-doubt and need to be perfect will hold you back. Making mistakes and learning from them is really one of the most valuable ways to grow and develop. And if you never step out of your comfort zone because you're afraid to be wrong or criticized or because of imposter syndrome, then you're holding yourself back. And so I kept all of those concepts in mind and looked to continue to challenge myself with assuming new roles and responsibilities over the past several years.
0: That's a great point and some interesting um, and fantastic pointers for women leaders. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that are unique to female leaders in orthopedics today. I know the orthopedics field is dominated by men, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on um, how it's been for you to be a female leader in that space.
1: I think the lack of diversity in our specialty is one of the biggest challenges that we face. So orthopedics is either the least diverse field within medicine or the second-to-least diverse. Um, Most people think that you have to have a big muscular guy to do orthopedics, but it's really having an understanding of mechanical advantage and leverage that will enable you to do anything that you do. When we don't have diversity of techniques and approaches to patient care, we lose an opportunity for growth and the ability to influence others to join the field if they don't see others who are like them. And I think that's really a disservice to this profession. I love orthopedic surgery and I love all the opportunities and the ability to care for patients that it has afforded me over the years. And to have a woman potentially discount that opportunity so early on in their career because they don't see other people doing it who look like them is really just, I think, unfortunate. Even things like a lot of our instrumentation is designed for the size of a man's hand if we don't advocate for ourselves and for our patients then we're really doing a disservice to our specialty and not really providing the full scope of what we can do in orthopedics
0: interesting yeah that's something i think not many women think about orthopedic surgeons the people in the orthopedic space when they're thinking about how they're developing their tools and the concepts that they need so that's a very interesting point Um, when you're looking at yourself and your career that you've discussed already taking on Leadership roles, um, what kind of things do women need to know about taking on leadership at their practices or at the hospitals? What are some of the important factors for them as they're uh, considering an upward trajectory with their careers?
1: I think there are several things that are critical for anyone who assumes a new leadership role, and, and these are especially important for women. So, one thing would be are there clear expectations for the role? Uh, how is success in that role defined and measured? You want to ensure that you're having a good idea of what you're getting into and how you're going to be judged so that you can receive appropriate feedback and continue to improve in the role that you're doing. Another important consideration is how are you going to be supported in this new role? And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about who's got your back. Are you the only woman on a board, for example? Are you the only woman in the room? Are you the first woman surgical director in the operating room? and who's going to be in your corner if you perceive inequities compared with other leaders. So it's important to understand who the other key stakeholders are and who your supervisors are that are going to either be there and support you in this role and help you grow and develop and do everything that you can, or they're going to be people that you need to kind of watch out for. Another important aspect when you're assuming a new leadership role is to know your value. Too often I hear women tell me how they're doing X, Y, and Z, for their practice or for their department or their health system without acknowledgement, compensation, or even allocated time to do those things. And these tasks aren't even leading to those future desired roles of what they're looking for. I'm not saying that you should only do things that are going to get you recognition or that you're going to be compensated for, but you should know what your limits are. How much of yourself are you willing to discount for that future goal or position?
0: That's a good point. I think the next thing I wanted to ask you about is some of your advice around negotiating salary and compensation. I know that can be a sticking point for some women and I'd love to hear anything that you'd like to share with us about some of the tips and tricks that you have in going into salary or compensation negotiations.
1: Sure, this is always a very um, often contentious and uh, undesirable portion of negotiating for a new position. A lot of people aren't comfortable with it, and so they tend to avoid it. My, I have two probably two big pieces of advice. The first one is don't set the anchor. Uh, someone always has to throw out the first number and don't let it be you. If you've talked with recruiters before or have interviewed for positions, it's always someone's job to find out how much you're currently making and how much you want to make. Unless you're looking to do the exact same job in a different place, those two numbers really aren't related. Your new salary should be based upon the expectations in that new role not based on what you currently make or what you currently do. If you put out the first number, all negotiations start from there. If you're way too high, you may have eliminated yourself from being asked even for a second interview. If you're too low, then you've just cheated yourself out of potential income because they're not gonna come back and say, oh, we actually intended to pay you this much more. The other piece is to consider all of the aspects that comprise your total compensation. If your base salary is set at a particular place and cannot be adjusted, which is common in academic medicine, there are other ways that, c- that you can be compensated. Productivity bonuses, protected time for research or administrative work, What your staffing support model looks like, vacation time, professional days, and development courses that can be paid for by your employer. In general, I'm not a fan of signing bonuses. That's a one-time thing, and your future salary increases come off of your base, not, that, not including that bonus. So I'd recommend that you forego the signing bonus if you can and negotiate a higher base salary. And that'll give you a better long-term compensation model when you consider years and years of of a salary
0: increase. That's so interesting. And I love the points that you're raising there in terms of salary negotiations and those kinds of things. And then I know you've mentioned already in our discussion a little bit about um, the importance of mentors and sponsors for women, especially women orthopedic surgeons. Could you tell me a little bit about um, how women can find sponsors and mentors within the workplace or within their personal circles? Sure. Uh, the words mentor and sponsor
1: are often used interchangeably, but they're very different terms with different purposes. Mentors are the people that you run things by. You know, hey, I'm thinking about changing jobs. Here's what the position is like. Or, hey, I'm thinking about joining a AAOS committee. What do you think? Then you discuss pros and cons. Then you work through your approach. Mentors are often your initial sounding board, someone you trust implicitly and someone who will give you difficult feedback and not necessarily agree with everything you say. And they may or may not be well known regionally or nationally. Sponsors, however, though, typically have an established either regional or national reputation, are usually in a position of power or heavy influence, and are typically people who respect you and your capabilities. These are the people who recommend you for that job or nominate you for that committee. They're putting their name behind you. And I think both are very critical to professional development and advancement. But in my opinion, sponsors are often better able to help launch your career in that larger, that first large leadership role. You can't really just walk up to someone well-known in the field and say, hey, will you mentor me or will you sponsor me? And I recommend that you have goals of what you want to achieve from a mentoring relationship or a specific goal in which you may need a sponsor. Once you have those clear goals delineated, then you should seek out opportunities to contact potential mentors and sponsors. Some potential locations to do this, receptions at conferences or volunteering for a task force led by a potential mentor or sponsor that that has been recommended for you. There are also programs that offer mentoring, like the Ruth Jackson Orthopedic Society, the Eastern Orthopedic Association, or specialty societies. Don't hesitate to ask people who they recommend. You may meet three or four people before you actually feel comfortable with someone, and that's perfectly fine. You should help nurture the relationship and really need to be the person who's driving the mentorship or the sponsorship. Don't sit back and wait to be contacted by the more senior person. You're the one who needs their help, and so I think you should be proactive about it and also ensuring that the mentorship reaches a natural, when it reaches its natural end, that you thank that person for their advice and for their guidance over the years. But you are likely going to need different mentors at different points of your career.
0: That's great. And um, next, where do you think are the best opportunities for women to shine in orthopedics going forward?
1: I think there are several areas in orthopedics where I see huge opportunity for women. Uh, Historically, women have taken roles related to diversity or work-life integration. And those are definitely important Women, however, are well represented at those tables. The areas where I think we need intentional involvement of women are on finance committees, strategic planning initiatives, boards of directors, and featured faculty at industry-sponsored events or invited faculty at national meetings. Being part of the strategic planning of an organization so that you can have your influence and action last well beyond your tenure. While I think that having diversity boards and work-life integration panels are very important and very practical for women in the workplace, I don't think that women should be pigeonholed into only being the experts on those particular areas. And that's still a big problem that I see within surgery, within
0: orthopedics, and within academic medicine. Fascinating. And then the last question I have here is, how do you decide which opportunities to pursue and which ones to turn down?
1: So this has always been a work in progress. I uh, historically am a yes ma'am or yes sir kind of person, so when I'm asked to do something, I do it. Um, One of the best pieces of advice I got was from uh, Dr. Elizabeth Travis. She's at MD Anderson. Uh, She was an invited professor for a career development for women's leaders program that we had at Wake Forest. Uh, several years ago, and she talked about how everyone has a to-do list, and we all love checking things off of our list and have that wonderful sense of accomplishment when we actually get everything done that's on our to-do list, and she taught me about the concept of having a stop-doing list, so looking at the things that occupy your day. What can you get rid of that you don't like doing? What can you get rid of that isn't really giving benefit to a group of people or to your department that maybe just be taking up time? And so I've switched now, and and while I still have my to-do list of things that I have to get done, uh, I have the stop-doing list. So when I'm asked to be on a committee or a task force or something that sounds like a lot of meetings and time, I first ask what the purpose of the group will be and what the anticipated time involvement will be and as well as the accountability and authority structure. Once I have that information, if I'm interested in participating, I look at my CV and I see Is this something that I want to do enough that I'm willing to replace it with another thing that I'm already doing? And so that way I don't continue to take on more and more and more without being able to offload something that I'm currently doing. I set a goal for each year to transition one or two existing roles I have within our department health system or other professional society to another colleague who may be ready for that next professional development opportunity. That way I'm not getting overwhelmed I can learn new things, and I can help promote the career of others. So my stop doing list has become one of my favorite professional life hacks.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Becker's Group Women's Leadership Podcast. Dr. Emery, this has been a fascinating discussion and a true pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. I've enjoyed
1: the opportunity and appreciate talking with you as well.